As we begin this morning, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16. It's going to read a little bit about a woman in this passage today, and we'll actually be coming back to this in future messages from the address of our Lord to Laodicea. But look down to verse 12 in Acts 16. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day we went outside of the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. This is a very encouraging account from the scriptures of this lady named Lydia. We have a Lydia with us today. This was a uh, lady there that Paul was able to speak to, and we rejoice that she was saved by our Lord. But for now, I want you to just notice, if you would, where she was from. She was from Thyatira. That is the book we're going to review today from Revelation chapter 2 that I read a little bit about a few moments ago. Now, I remind you again of the way that these cities were set up. There was a preaching route that was a semi-oval or a half-oval. You came in at Ephesus and you went up, and the top city that we looked at last week was Pergamum. And then you came a little bit further east and down to Thyatira. So that's where Thyatira was. Now, Philippi, however, was way beyond Pergamum, across and up above the Aegean Sea in what was Greece, the Macedonian region of Greece. So Lydia had quite a trip to make to get to Philippi. And she went there. It was a business trip. She was a seller, as the text says, of fabric. She was a seller of purple fabrics. Now, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation in chapter 2. And look down to verse 18. And Jesus says to the angel of the church of Thyatira, write. When we began this study in Thyatira in the uh, year of 2012, a couple of years ago, we began by noting that this was what we called the Forgotten City. The Forgotten City. And we called it that for several reasons. Mostly because today there's nothing left. No ruins Nothing really left to show that Thyatira was ever there. Just a little plaque in the modern city of Akasar. But they do know this. From archaeological studies, they found that there were many trade unions, as we would call them today, called guilds back then. 
And the main thing that these unions or guilds were famous for or noted for was making dye for fabrics. Bright colored dye like royal purple. And so we have the, again, consistency of the scripture as we read in Acts that Paul meets this woman from Thyatira who was a seller of purple and archaeological digs tell us that that's what Thyatira was noted for. Now the other reason we called it the forgotten city had to do with the church that was in the city. We know very little about the church. Unlike some of the other churches where we knew of even some of the men that were there as pastors or elders, the messengers to whom Jesus was speaking, we do not really know much about Thyatira at all. There is some possible speculation that Paul was there and that Paul founded this church. And some in history suggest that he did that because... He met Lydia in Philippi. So he wanted to go back and see Lydia in Thyatira, and that's when he established the church there. But that, again, is based on church history, not based on so much what the Scripture says. We know little about the church. But we do know, according to the Scriptures, about the faith. In the church, verse 19, I know your deeds. They had love, they had faith, and they had service, and they were persevering. And that these deeds were even increasing, as he says, that their deeds were greater than at the first. And we spent some time talking about what it means to have love and faith and service and perseverance for the Word of God and how essential that is in a church. And Jesus, our Lord, commends them for that. But from there we went on to see the false teaching addressed by our Lord in the church, particularly as He says in verse 20 about the woman Jezebel. I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now we mentioned when we did this study, and it's likely true, that that was probably not her name. Who among anyone would name their children Jezebel, knowing her as the wicked queen of King Ahab? She was anathema, wicked. But this is the name Jesus ascribes to the woman there in Thyatira, who was preaching and teaching and leading the church astray and leading the church into immorality. And Jesus is saying, I have this against you, that you tolerate this woman. Now what do you think Jesus would say in our day, as not only do churches tolerate women preachers, but promote them? You see the billboards up and down, 19, of women, perhaps sometimes next to the husband, but like the women is the co-pastor. Even though the clear teaching of the Word of God is that elders, pastors, teachers, in terms of preaching in the church, are to be men. 
And they say, oh, that was just a, a cultural thing. No, it isn't. No, it wasn't. No, it isn't. If you know the Scripture, you know that men are called upon to be the elders, pastors, and preachers to the church. Always. And yet we have a day today, much like Thyatira, that elevates and promotes women preachers. This is not a pet peeve of mine. It's just in the text. It is against the Word of God. And uh, like it or not, and some people just really can't accept it, it ought not to be. But then he goes on and speaks to them about the fact that they were doing all this wickedness, all this immorality, and all of these bad things that were happening in the church. And he actually blames much of it on this woman who was leading them astray. But then he does come down after speaking judgment against her and against those that follow her. He says in verse 25, Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. This is a good thing of encouragement that Jesus speaks to those that were in this church. Even though they had a wicked woman teacher, Jezebel, those of you who were not following her, I commend you for what you are doing. Hold fast. Keep doing those deeds. Words of encouragement to Jesus. You know, it's not like there was another church down the road that the people could have gone to. Churches were few and far between. It's not like today, if you got a women preacher in one church, we'll go to one that doesn't have it. They didn't have that opportunity. And there were some good men there, some good followers of Jesus. And Jesus, the kind shepherd, takes a good word of encouragement and brings that to these people. And we use that in this church, as this is relevant to us, to say that we need to maintain our integrity in every way. This is no joke. This is no small matter. We strive to keep the integrity of the Scriptures in all that we do, including who does and who does not preach in this church. And to know what is taught and what is not taught in this church. We strive to maintain historic Christian doctrine because it matters to Jesus what is taught in your church. And we, even though we are a small flock, take encouragement with his encouraging words to our plight. Now with that brief review, I invite you to turn the page to Revelation chapter 3 as we return again to the church there at Laodicea that our Lord addresses. We saw from verse 14 what we called the description of the one addressing the church. As he says, the Amen, the faithful and true witness the beginning of creation of God says this. He is the one who is true. He is the one who is a witness, faithful and true, of God and of himself and of truth. 
And he is the one who is the beginning of all creation. That is the one who originated it. He is the creator God, and he addresses the church. And so we have been looking at the depiction of our Lord of this church. We looked at the description of the one addressing the church, and now his depiction of this church. And he says in verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. And we talked about what that meant. Being cold is one who is like an atheist, cares nothing about God. And being hot is not some super Christian, but a regular follower of Christ who is faithful to the things of Jesus, who takes up his cross daily and follows him. But again, thinking of the fact that he's addressing a church, a cold church is like a dead, cold, what we would call world religion type church. There's no real evangelical concern. There's no concern about being accurate to the scriptures. They really don't care about God. It's just a social duty to go to church. But a hot church would be one that stands firm for the things of God. And what he says of Laodicea is, you are neither hot nor cold, you are lukewarm. Remember their water? They had terrible water. It was a, one of the things we know about Laodicea. I remind you that they were noted for their banking. They were bankers. They had gold. They were noted for their black sheep with that shiny black wool that they made great fabric from. And they were noted for their medical center that made eye salve to help people to see and to not go blind. But they were also noted for lousy water, very bad putrid water that came out like brownish with all kinds of sediments in it, and it was notorious for being lukewarm. So if you weren't from Laodicea and weren't used to it and you drank it, you took it and went and vomited it out. And this is what Jesus is obviously referring to when he says, I wish you were hot or cold, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And he goes on to describe the church, or give this depiction. You say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. That's what they said. But what Jesus said and what Jesus knew was opposite of what they said. But you are, as he says, wretched. And we looked at that term and what it meant to be wretched, which was despised and wicked. And then he said miserable, which doesn't mean that they were just feeling bad and sick. Actually, it means pitiable. They were to be pitied. And they were to be pitied for their ignorance of not recognizing their own spiritless situation. Their own lostness. And we pick up with what he says next. That you are poor. So he says to them, you were wretched, miserable, and poor. Now, Think again about what this city was noted for. 
This city would no, was noted for being wealthy. When there was an earthquake here in A.D. 17, it wiped out the city. And they didn't even accept any help from Rome to rebuild because they didn't need it. We'll do it our way, and we'll do it with our money. And that's what they did. They were wealthy, very wealthy. They were a center for banking. And so in the church at Laodicea, I would imagine that there were some bankers, some investors, some wealthy sheep owners, doctors from the medical center. So the church at Laodicea was obviously a wealthy church because they said, Jesus says, you think you're wealthy. You think you've got all the money. So obviously in this church, there were some high donors. And as we said, the plates were probably full when they passed them around during the collection at church. They thought that they had all this stuff. But Jesus says, you're poor. You're poor. And he was obviously, again, speaking not so much of their material goods, but of their spiritual state. They had the money, but they didn't have the heart for God. They didn't have the zeal for God. They didn't have the spirit of God. And in that sense, they were poor. If you would, please turn back to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. They thought that they were in need of nothing. They thought they had it all. But listen to what Jesus says and how he describes one who knows that which is the most valuable, that which is the most important thing to have. As you look down to verse 44, the kingdom of heaven, the what? The kingdom of heaven. Being a part of the kingdom of Christ, being a Christian, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it goes and sells all that he has so that he can buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. What was the most important thing? Not your money, but the kingdom of God. And you would do whatever it would take to gain that kingdom, to have that kingdom as yours, to be a part of the kingdom of Christ. Sell all and have Jesus. This is a picture of a man who knows and is rich in the things of Christ. Let me ask you this. Is there something, is there anything more valuable to you than your salvation? 
Is there anything that could possibly be more valuable to you than Jesus? What would you give in exchange for your salvation? What amount of money could the world heap upon you that you would be willing to go through an eternity in hell for the brief few years you have on this earth? And this is what Jesus is saying to Laodicea. You have your money, but you don't have me. Look at chapter 19 of the book of Matthew. A great parable of our Lord, as He says to the disciples in verse 23, Truly, truly, or truly, I say to you, remember that's the word Amen, that He says in Revelation 3 to Laodicea, the Amen, it's translated here truly, but it's the same word. Amen, or truly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, who then can be saved? Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll never forget, there's a preacher from San Antonio who said, well, you know what he's really saying was there, there is in, in Israel, in Jerusalem, a little gate known as the Needle Gate, and it was very hard for the camels that, to get down and go through that needle. It's not true at all! That's no such thing! Why would the uh, disciples be astonished if people were doing that all the time? Jesus is painting the picture of a needle and a camel going through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. But it's possible with God. But here's the point he makes. It's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. There are two I see. I know there may be more, and I'm not trying to make this a hard, fast statement, but think with me. There are at least two great Curses that America has been given in terms of God and the gospel today. One of the great curses is what we were talking about in the previous hour when we were studying the new intelligentsia that has swept over the world. That people just think they're so smart. And from the mid-1800s with the publishing of Darwin and other things, people just think, oh, we know so much better. We're so much smarter now. The Bible, you know, that was just written by men. It's fairy tales. It's myths. We're so smart now. So all this so-called knowledge that people have. And I made the point in the last hour, and I say it again. You can be smart. You can be a doctor with PhDs and more letters after your name than my name has. You can have all of that and still know that the Bible is the Word of God. And still believe that it is true. That every word is the very Word of God. I know some very smart, very intelligent, very learned men who believe that very thing. God is God, and His Word is true. 
So don't think that because you're smart that the Bible is a lie. That's not true at all. They don't believe because they don't want to believe. But they use this intelligence as an excuse. And you know what the other thing is? If that's one of the great curses that America has for our disbelief of the Word of God, the other is our wealth. America has been blessed with great wealth. And you can almost see in the annals of Satan's lair and demons, and he goes, what can we do to America to make them not believe in the gospel? I know, let's make them wealthy. And America has great wealth. And when you have money, why do you need God? When you have so much money that every day you got whatever you need, why do you need to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread? When you have money to provide for your house, for your medical care, why do you have to pray, Lord, I pray your care and help and healing? I don't need to ask God. I can pay for it. America has great wealth. And Jesus said how hard it is for one who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Laodicea, if you would turn back there to Revelation chapter 3. Laodicea thought that they were rich. Thought that they had it made. And because of their money, they were in need of nothing. But Jesus says to them here in this text, you are poor because you are not rich in what matters. The things of God. That's what matters. For most of our existence, we've been poor. I don't just mean me. I've had to work a couple of jobs at times to provide for my family and that sort of thing. God always provided, but in the eyes of the world, you look at us and you think, man, these people are poor. The fact of the matter is, material goods are not what matters. A big building and a big church building are not what matters. What matters is, are we rich in the things of God? That's what matters. Do we please God? Do we please God with what we do with our money? Do we honor God with what we do with our money? That's what matters. Are we rich in the things of God? Now again, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that it's a sin to be rich. And I'm not saying, you know, because all of us in terms of these people are rich. We have, you know, everyone in this room is rich compared to everyone that Jesus would have been talking to. We're wealthy. We're wealthy. And it's not a sin to be blessed by God to have wealth. But what do you do with it? Where does it? Where is your treasure? As he said in the Sermon on the Mount. For where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. That's what counts. That's what matters. Individuals trust in their riches, but they are poor in the eyes of God, because they're lost 
and they don't care about Christ. Churches look on their outward appearance and think that they're rich, just like Laodicea. We have a campus. Maybe we have Camp I. We're rich. Where's your theology? Where's your doctrine? What do you believe? What do you hold for? Do you preach holiness? Godliness? Do you strive to exalt God? I say to you, there are many churches who think they are rich, just as Laodicea did. But they neither have the truth nor the heart for God that they ought to have. And so Jesus says to them, you are poor, lost without God. We move on. He says next, you are blind. You are wretched and miserable and poor and blind. You remember that eye salve from the medical center? You think this was an accident? You think Jesus didn't know what he was saying and why he was saying this? This was a church and this was a city. This was a people who thought that they had great eyesight. And not only could they see, they were helping the rest of the world see with their eyesalve from the medical center that was located in Laodicea. They thought that they were helping everyone to see. Remember, blindness was a a, a big, big problem then because a lot of people would go blind from all of the dust and the roads and all of the other things that we take for granted as treating with our eyes and everything. They had a problem and many people would go blind. And so they were helping the world to see. They had this stuff from the medical center. But Jesus says, you're blind. Remember what he said in Matthew 15? Your blind guides leading the blind. Blind guides leading the blind. But let me ask you to turn with me to John chapter 9. Great chapter from the Apostle John about what took place with our Lord. John chapter 9 tells us about a man who was blind from birth, verse 1 says. Blind from birth. Now, like I just said, he didn't go blind. I saw wouldn't have helped him. He did not go blind. He was blind from birth. Can you imagine that? I would uh, risk saying close your eyes, but I'd lose too many of you. (laughs) If you close your eyes and you never saw anything in your life, You never saw the bright purple shirt that Micah's wearing or the orange one that his brother has on. You never saw any colors. A sunrise, a sunset, the blue sky, the red rose, my lovely wife's face. You never saw anything. Born blind. And that's this man. And you know, the, the disciples come to him. One day, I promise I'll preach on this passage. His disciples come to him and say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither this man sinned nor his parents, 
but it was that the works of God might be displayed. And you know what Jesus does? He makes a little paste, puts it on his eyes, says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. He goes and he washes his eyes and then he can see. His eyesight is restored. Now, you're a religious leader of the day. You're a scribe. You're a Pharisee. Isn't this exciting? No. (laughs) They were not happy about it. Because a mighty, mighty miracle was done by Jesus. And uh uh-oh, verse 14, now it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. You see, not only was it against their rules, against their laws, that he actually healed the man, but he had the audacity to do work by making that paste. See, that's a work, and you can't work on the Sabbath. So that he wasn't allowed to make the paste to put on his eyes that he would then go and wash off and have his eyesight restored. But Jesus healed this man who was born blind. And I want you to see what the man says in response. Verse 25. Because you know the Pharisees grilled him. Are you really the one who was born blind? They, they grilled his parents. Is he really the one who was born blind? And they grilled him again. Are you really the one who was born blind? And he says, who did this to you? Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, speaking of Jesus. Verse 25, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. I once was blind, but now I see. People, that is the testimony of any true believer. We don't say we see. We've always seen. We always understand the things of God. Once I was blind and now I see. And here we're talking about, we're beginning to see exactly what Jesus is talking about when he speaks to Laodicea. He's not talking about physical blindness. It's not that they were blind. But blindness is one who is in need of light. Blindness is one who is blind to the truth. And we say with this blind man, and we say, and that's why I changed the hymn to Amazing Grace, with Newton, I once was blind, but now I see. That's how we as Christians all can attest. I once was blind, and now I see. So Jesus then says to the man, if you look down a little bit, verse 35, he heard that he was put out of the synagogue and finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? That's a reference to the Messiah. Some translations even say Son of God. But in the Greek, it's a man. But it's still a reference to being the Messiah. And they would have known that. The man would have known that. The Pharisees would have known that. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, What? You have both seen him, and he is the one talking with you. What is it? You know, you've never seen anything in your life. 
And now you're looking at God. Now you're looking at the Messiah. I, I wasn't born blind, but I know that one day I will open my eyes after death and I will see him. This man born blind never saw anything. Jesus tells him to, after putting that paste on his eyes, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And what happens? All of a sudden, he opens his eyes and like, I can see the sun glaring off some cars out there. He can, he can now see light. He can see brightness. He can see colors. Micah's shirt, Jonathan's shirt. Wow. Purple and orange. He could see. He could see. Finds his way back to this place and he sees Jesus. You're seeing him. So Jesus says, do you believe? And he said, you've both seen him and it's him who is talking with you. And he said, yes, you Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. I once was blind, but now I see. And in response to what Christ has done, I worship him. This is the natural progression of a true Christian. But now what happens? Jesus said in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see. Which one were, were we before we were saved? Those that do not see. Those that need light. Those that need truth. Those that need salvation. We were once those who do not see. We were once blind that those that may not see, that they may see. We were once blind, but now we see. We see the truth of who Jesus is. We see and understand the truth of what He did on the cross. We see and we understand in the light of the Word of God the sin and wickedness that is so pervasive today that so many of your friends and family and co-workers go, what are you talking about? But they don't see it from the eyes of Scripture. We do. We were once blind, but now we see. And so Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. And what's he talking about there? Who were those that thought they could see? How about the church in Laodicea? We think we see. But Jesus says you're blind. How about the scribes and the Pharisees who thought they knew it all? Just like the church in Laodicea. They thought they were rich, had the word of God. They thought that they could see, had all the light, all the understanding, and all the knowledge. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you that you are blind. Now, How do I know that that's exactly what Jesus was talking about? Verse 40, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things that said to him, we are not blind too, are we? Are you calling us blind? 
We're the ones with the truth. We're the ones with the light. We're the ones who know it all. How could you call us blind? And that's what he was doing. Are you calling us blind? Those who are blind are in need of light. The scribes and the Pharisees were dark in their hearts and in their eyes. And they needed the truth. And Jesus says in verse 41, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. And what he's saying to them very briefly is that you think you've got it all so that you remain in your sin. If you would say, Jesus, I've seen amazing things today. You made a man who was born blind to see. I thought that I've been right all my life in my, my zealousness for the Jewish religion. I thought that I've been right all these years. And now you've shown me that I don't know what I'm talking about. I need your light. I need your truth. I need your knowledge. If they had said that, they would not have been with sin. But because they said, we know everything. You call us blind. Your sin remains. How many times did Jesus say in the scriptures, I did not come for the righteous, but for sinners. It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And we say, I once was blind, but now I see. People, this was my testimony. I thought I was a good guy. Hadn't killed anybody lately. Wasn't a big thief or anything like that. Thought I was a pretty moral guy. All of a sudden, I read the scriptures and God arrested me and said, you're blind. You need light. You need truth. You need salvation. And I say that there are some of you here today who are blind. You think you know? You think you know that this may, oh, that's just fairy tale stuff. Hell isn't real. Heaven isn't real. When you die, you die like a dog. That's it. You think you know. You're blind. You need light. You need to be able to see. You need truth and the truth of God's Word and the salvation of Jesus Christ. You need to be rich. In Him and filled with the light of His Word. Laodicea's hearts were hardened. They thought they could see. They thought they were rich. And Jesus says, you're poor and you're blind. I fear that there are so many religious people so many religions filled with people who are blind. They don't care about the Word of God. They don't care about 
accurate historic theology or doctrine. All they care about is putting in their time at church and looking to the world as if we're good people. We've got everything and we can see. Jesus says you've got nothing and you're blind. I can only say as we close this morning, may God help us to have the demeanor of this blind man. I once was blind and now I see. And to know that if you do see today, it is all because of the grace and mercy of Jesus. Just as He opened the eyes of this man, if you see today, He opened your eyes too. What a great Savior. Let's pray.